Would you turn in your Bibles again this morning to Matthew chapter 19? Matthew chapter 19. If uh, you're joining us for the first time in a while this morning, uh, we are in the midst of a series on human sexuality called The Bride and the Lamb. And uh, we've actually looked at this text quite a bit in this series. And um, if you haven't been here much, I hope you would would take the time to listen to some of the other messages and sort of put things in context. There are parts of this text that I can't deal with uh, this morning or can't deal with in depth, um, but, uh, but some of those items may have come out in previous messages, and so hopefully you can pick up on those. I want to give a little credit, too, um, to people like uh, Mark Yarhouse, who I've studied quite a bit for this topic, and also our friend Chris Gansky, um, and his work on, on this topic as well, and some of their thoughts uh, will be present in this message. I also want to just give you a brief warning. I started preaching, I think, in 1991, so it's over 30 years I've been practicing, trying to take a lot of information and condensing it into, you know, brief points, and I haven't been very good at that. <clears throat> um, don't expect that it's going to happen today. I'll just, uh, I'll just warn you that right away. Let's look at Matthew uh, 19 and see what our Lord has to say. We'll begin there with verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they are born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And if you haven't uh, picked it up from your bulletins already, we're looking at the topic this morning of, of gender. So, sisters and brothers in in Jesus Christ, I never thought that one of the most controversial statements ever to come from Jesus would be this statement that the Creator made them male and female. In fact, many people, neither outside nor inside the church, found those words very controversial at all until sometime in the 1960s. Now, that's not to say <clears throat> that no one ever struggled with, um, with gender issues before the 1960s. 
In fact, most cultures throughout history record some evidence of people who struggled with that fit between, between sex and gender. Why, even the book of Deuteronomy mentions this in Deuteronomy 22. A woman must not wear a man's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing, for this is detestable before the Lord your God. Yet, while there's evidence of human struggle with gender throughout history, no one in the past really questioned these categories of male and female themselves. People just took it for granted that we are sexed creatures, and therefore our sex and our gender were pretty much exactly the same thing. That is no longer true today, that people feel that way or think that way. <clears throat> a few years ago, I attended a uh, gender reveal party. It was for my grandson. It's the first time I'd ever been to something like that, but I'm sure many of you have, and you've seen these kind of things. You know all about them. Well, the parents are supposed to come up with some clever idea, some clever way to announce uh, that the baby's going to be either a boy or a girl. In this particular case, I think we were supposed to um, bite into cupcakes, and the filling in the cupcake was supposed to be either blue or pink, and um, that's the way they were going to spill the beans. Well, um, I'm colorblind, and so I, I bit into the cupcake, and the question remained unresolved. Um, I did not see pink or blue, just some indistinct or undistinguishable color. And little did I know that that's pretty much how the world today would come to see gender. Let's, let's back up for just a moment and try to do some defining here. If we're going to discuss this topic together, okay, we need to at least begin to, or at least be on the same page somewhat with our definitions. And therefore, let's start there. And when we talk about sex, we're referring to a person's biological sex, okay? Men are born with a Y chromosome. Uh, women are not. So sex refers to our, our biology. Now, gender, on the other hand, <clears throat> like I said, no longer in the common mind really correlates to our biological sex. Gender is viewed more as, as a social construct. You know, men prefer blue, women prefer pink. That's a social or a cultural construct. And therefore, gender today also has to do with this internal sense of self. Okay, how, how do I feel? How do I feel about who I am? Do you feel like you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl? It's something internal. It's something within you. That even though you and even though you might have that internal feeling, it's often based on an external expectation, right? So there are all of these um, gender roles that we have in our society as well and in our church, and we often compare ourselves to those roles and say, well, this is the way I feel in comparison with that. So that's one of the first things we have to understand today is that sex and gender are pretty much considered two different things, okay? Two different things. Now, I'm sure that you're also familiar with the term transgender. To be transgender is to be a person who experiences some incongruence between their biological sex and their gender identity. 
And so in layperson's terms, a transgender person might say, I feel like I'm trapped in the wrong body. And therefore, they might begin to dress or act or even transition toward the gender they feel themselves to be rather than the gender that corresponds to their biological sex. That's transgender. But then there's also this term gender dysphoria or gender dysphoric. Gender dysphoria is more of a clinical term um, used to describe the distress that comes with the feeling that your gender doesn't match up with your biological sex. The distress that comes with feeling that you're, you're stuck inside the wrong body. That you are, let's say, a man in a woman's body or a woman in a man's body. And friends, I just want to note here that this is a very real thing. Okay? Gender dysphoria is not something that's made up. It's not something that people claim just to get attention. It's a disorder And it's been recognized by mental health professionals for quite some time now. It's a psychological disorder, just like anxiety or bipolar disorder. And in that way, it can be mild or severe. It can come and go, or it can sort of always be there in the background, like you're listening to a bad radio station, right? And there's always this buzz or this static. Even so, um, it can be something that's socially crippling, okay? And even though there's a movement now in the direction of removing, um, removing gender dysphoria from the list of psychological disorders, the reason is not that the pain doesn't really exist, okay? And so even as we have this discussion, friends, please remember that there are very real people who suffer with this dysphoria in very real ways and some of them are probably among us here this morning and there is no easy solution to this okay it's not like you can snap your fingers or take a pill or make and just make everything go away it's not like you can say well just you know fix yourself it doesn't it doesn't work that way this is a lifetime struggle for many people it doesn't help just to deny that it exists or to make it the butt of your jokes. So, if we learn anything this morning, um, we've learned some definitions that I hope are are helpful. The problem is that those few definitions are just the tip of the iceberg. Okay? So, just a few years ago, you could learn the definition of what it means to be transgender, and you would have a pretty good feel for this gender issue in general. In other words, we were still speaking in binary terms just a few years ago. Trans people were pretty much men who felt like women or women who felt like men. Today, even those terms have changed, and we refer less to trans identities And we refer more and more to emerging identities, okay? Emerging identities. Mark Yarhaus is a a Christian psychologist who's done a great deal of research in the area of gender. He introduces us to Max, who is a 13-year-old boy who identifies himself as agender. Max explains the term this way. What it means, he says, is I'm neither a guy 
or a girl. And that's how I feel, which is different than terms like gender fluid, which means you feel like a guy or a girl at different times. Because I don't feel like I'm both guy and girl. I'm neither. Two years ago, after initially identifying as a girl, Max discovered several gender identity labels, including agender, through social media. And he says this, I was like, you know what? This describes me a little better than girl. So I've been rolling with that for over a year now. So friends, this is where we begin to realize in all of the different terms and definitions and the way people identify and see themselves, this is where we begin to realize that gender has become a much bigger, more significant issue than perhaps we may have first thought. This is no longer just about gender dysphoria and the real pain that comes along with that. This has become more of a, of a movement And it's a movement to actually deconstruct the categories of male and female completely. You see, the attempt to reduce pain, the pain that comes along with gender dysphoria, in the past, attempts to reduce that pain focused on how to help our inner self become more aligned with our biological sex. That's no longer the case. Today, we hope to reduce that pain or make that pain go away by completely doing away with the categories of male and female. You see, if if there is no more male and female, then there is no more dysphoria. But something I think we need to recognize here is that this solution to the problem our society's solution to the problem, to just do away with these categories completely, this has brought about even more pain than we initially started with. Let me just read you a a few statistics here. Um, The Tavistock Center in London, which is the main gender clinic in the United Kingdom, this is where those stats come from. In 2009, they treated their 51 children and teenagers who had gender dysphoria or were identifying as trans. Okay, 2009, 51, 34 were males, 17 were females. And so the number of males doubled the number of females. In 2016, that same clinic saw 1,766 children and teenagers, 557 males, 1,209 females. So the number of females had doubled the number of males. In 2019, so this is 10 years later, that number grew to, two, or to 2,364 um, children and teens that were seen. Only 624 of them were male, 1,740 of them were females. Now if you get lost in the numbers there, the important thing to see, I think, is in 10 years this clinic saw a 1,500% increase in the males that they were seeing and over a 5,000% increase in the number of females they were seeing. Over 5,000% that number grew in 10 years. And those, that trend is similar today in the United States. Okay? 
Now, some people will explain that by saying, well, these children were always there, they always existed, they were always struggling with this issue, and the numbers really haven't changed, but it's just become more socially acceptable now to admit that I'm struggling with this, and that's why we're seeing these high numbers. However, most professionals think that that's, that's just too simplistic an explanation, that there have to be more factors that are involved in this. And as Christians, I think we would say that one of those factors is the trying to do away completely with these categories of biological sex and the connection that that has to our gender. And by doing that, we've actually created a bigger problem. Now, <clears throat> now gender is a, is a huge conversation, friends, and I want to acknowledge that. The causes and effects are very, very complicated. They're not clear. Um, there's so much study that is yet being done on these things. And I don't want to sound like I'm oversimplifying things because I hope I'm not. But in the time that we have left, what I want to do is sort of allow Jesus now to enter into this discussion and begin to frame this discussion for us in what I think are some really important ways. We're followers of Jesus, right? Um, and therefore, what he says should be pretty important to us, and he should be the one framing our discussion. So that's what I'm going to attempt to do in the time that we have remaining. So allow me to, to point out four things that Jesus does here in Matthew 19 when he's confronted with this question of divorce that I think also apply to the, the, the matter that we're dealing with this morning. And the first thing that we need to see this morning is that Jesus in dealing with this question, points, points us back to creation, not to our experience. Okay? Jesus points us back to our creation or to the creation rather than our experience. In other words, when the Pharisees come to him asking for his perspective on divorce, he doesn't say, well, you know, the most important thing is that you get in touch with your feelings for your spouse. Rather, what he does is he points them back to God's original purpose and original design for marriage, okay? And, and what, what I want you to see here, friends, is that it turns out the most controversial thing that Jesus says in this text is not actually the part about God made them male and female. The most controversial thing it turns out to be is what Jesus deems to be authoritative. What Jesus says is authoritative for our lives. And what he says is authoritative is God's design and purpose for his people. Not just for marriage, for everything. In other words, Jesus actually views God as God. Might be surprising, might not be to us. But Jesus views God as God. God is the one who created us. God is the one who loves us. God is the one who gets to define for us what it means to live as human beings. In other words, God is our authority, not our experience. Not this thing that's inside of myself that I view as myself, okay? And this, in the end, is the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is who gets to define us as human beings. 
Does God get to do that? Through our biology, through our bodies? You are male and you are female. I want you to live into that reality. Or do I get to define myself? Now, I think the transgender movement would loudly proclaim that we are the ones who get to define who we are. Um, I'll give you an example of that. Back in 2018, Andrea Long Chu um, wrote a, a post or an op-ed in the New York Times, and um, this is what she said. In that piece, Chu argues for, or argues that for too long, um, doctors have been the gatekeepers for when a person should be allowed medical intervention to transition from one sex to another. In other words, the doctors could say, you are or you are not a good candidate for this intervention. And the doctors might say, you know, hormone therapy or surgery might actually do you more harm than it'll do you good. And Chu points out that the considerations that these gatekeepers have in mind when they approve medical interventions are not the same considerations that Chu has in mind for herself. Okay? This is what she says. I believe that surgeries of all kinds can and do make an enormous difference in the lives of trans people. In other words, I believe it takes away the pain. But I also believe that surgery's only prerequisite should be a simple demonstration of want. Let me repeat that. I also believe that surgery's only prerequisite should be a simple demonstration of want. Beyond this, no amount of pain, anticipated or continuing, justifies withholding that surgery. Now, do you hear what she's saying there? Okay, the only thing that justifies whether I should have surgery or not is if I want it. Now, I just want to point out two things here. Think first about the arbitrariness of that statement. All right? The only prerequisite to surgery should be a simple demonstration of want. Now, would we make that argument for surgery beyond this category? I mean, what if I were to go into the doctor and say, well, I want heart bypass surgery or I want a lung transplant? Not because I need it, just because... I want it. And it doesn't matter if it'll kill me or not. It's what I want, and therefore I should be able to get it. It's, it's a very arbitrary kind of statement. And friends, there's so much about this movement that fits in that category of arbitrary that it's, it's a little bit um, unnerving. But the bigger point is this. Whatever I want, I should be able to get. When I say that, I have now placed myself in the position of whom? Of God. I have now become the authority, the authority over my life, and I have placed myself also in direct opposition to Jesus who says in all of these questions where we go is back to our Creator. He is our authority. It is He who made us, and we are His. Jesus does not allow us to place our experience above God himself. Okay, so the framework, the first piece of that framework is the creator's authority. G. 
Jesus also goes on and he gives us another piece of that framework, and it's the Creator's good intent. The Creator's good intent. Remember, this is Genesis 1 that Jesus is pointing us to. And he's talking about the image of God. God created us in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw what he had made, and it was very good. The things that God makes are very, very good. If there's anything we learn about the creation story, it's that message. It's good. He tells us that over and over and over again. Now, when God creates, He actually creates by separating things, doesn't He? He separates the light from the darkness. He separates the waters above from the waters below. He separates the seas from the land. He separates the day from the night. God creates by separating over and over. In other words, there is a two-ness to His creation. There is a two-ness to his creation. But then he also brings those things back together. And when he does, in their oneness, we find goodness and life. For instance, you don't really know what a day is apart from light and dark, right? And you don't really know what the earth is apart from land and water. We need them both. They both make the world incredible. If you only have one, you don't really have life. God separates and then he brings things back together. There is two-ness and there is oneness and both of them are necessary together. And when God creates human beings, he does the same thing. He separates the male and the female. He takes the woman out of the man she is something other than him. There is a two-ness there. There is a distinctness in the creation of human beings, and it's a necessary distinctness. In fact, the only way that we can really understand maleness is in the presence of a female. And the only way you can understand being a woman is in the presence of a man. It doesn't make any sense to have a male all by himself. Okay, there's nothing male there. In fact, it's in our differences that we find who we are. This is what it means, friends, to complement one another. We need each other even to define ourselves and especially to define the image of God. And yet, here's the point, or here's the catch. The Bible really doesn't go very far in describing our distinctness, in describing our maleness and femaleness. I mean, what it says is a male is not a female, and a female is not a male. But there is not much more than that that's actually said. Now, some of you may argue that, and, and that would be like three more sermons, um, and I'm sure you don't want that this morning. But what I want to say here is there is not much that the Bible says about maleness and femaleness, and yet we often act like there is. We often act like the Bible sort of says, well, you know, a woman is these ten things, 
And a man is these ten things. And you need to fit one of these categories. I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, I was vacuuming out our car <clears throat> in the driveway. I don't think I told you this story. Um, but I had Lily, who's three years old, with, with me, and Calvin, my grandson, who's two. And, and I was vacuuming out the car, and of course, they start climbing in the car, and they want to help and do all of that. So finally, I got frustrated enough. I just gave them the vacuum, and I said, okay, you guys just work at this for a while. So I went in the garage for about five minutes puttering around, and I came back out, and I check inside the car, and there's Lily in the front seat underneath, underneath the steering wheel, and she's vacuuming the mats and the seats like a mad woman. I mean, she's going at it like she's working her tail off, right? Then it occurs to me, where's Calvin? And I open the back door, and there he's sitting with his, his feet up on the seat, and he's reading a book. <laughs> now, now, we could laugh about that, friends, but there are many people that think that these are the gender roles that are laid out in the Bible, right? That, you know, it's the man who's kind of the supervisor and he gets to direct how things should go and, and the woman's the helper, right? And she gets to be the one who does all the work, especially these domestic kinds of, of chores. And that's what it means to be a man or a woman. And then we take the next step and we begin to imprint those ideas on believers, Right? And so we organize Christian men's retreats. And we talk about David and how David was a mighty warrior and he killed lions and bears with his bare hands. And he killed a giant, you know, with a slingshot and then cut off his head with a sword. And we say, this is what a male should be. And we kind of gloss over the fact that David loved to write poetry that still hits our hearts today like a ton of bricks. And David liked to play the harp and could do it in a way that he, he could put restless souls to rest. And he had his friend Jonathan over whom he said his love was better than the love of any woman. And it just doesn't seem to mesh with that first idea, that Tim Allen sort of idea of a man, <laughs> right? And so we just don't talk about the other side of David. And then we organize Christian women's retreats, and we talk about how, you know, a woman, a Christian woman should be subject to her husband and serve him dinner and happily raise the children. And we gloss over parts of the Bible that talk about the group of women who supported Jesus' ministry. In other words, they were paying the bills, working the jobs. The women who prophesied. Or women like Deborah who, who held court in Israel. And you read that, that the Israelites came from all over the nation to sit at her feet and to hear how she might decide their disputes. And then there was Jael who put a tent peg through Sisera's head and fought the battles of the kingdom of God. And friends, what we're doing in these cases is we're simply reinforcing cultural stereotypes of what it means to be a male and a female. 
what it means to be a Christian man or a Christian woman. And the problem is, I think, for our children especially, they may not resonate with that picture, right? And then they begin to wonder, well, what's, what's wrong with me? And then the other children begin to make fun of, fun of girls who want to preach or build or lead and, and boys who would rather read books than shoot a basket or shoot a deer. And then they begin to think, well, maybe I really don't belong here. Maybe I really don't belong in this place. Or maybe I don't even belong as a Christian. Friends, sometimes we think these kinds of ideas have no consequences. But they do. And, and I can't get into it all again this morning, like I said, but I just want, us, I want to encourage us to be far more generous in our understanding of two-ness. Biblical maleness and femaleness are not as narrow a concept as sometimes we think they are. And, and then I just want to say to the children here and to the young people, if you ever feel like, like you don't fit in the church or you don't fit as a part of God's people, I just want you to know that it's not this cultural idea of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman you're not trying to fit yourself into that. The only thing the Bible says, really, about what it means to be a man or a woman is to be like Jesus. That's what we want you to be, like Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing within you. He's creating love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and all of those things. It's about Jesus. So God creates by separating the man and the woman, but then he also brings them back together again. Okay? And the man celebrates when that happens, and he, he begins to voice poetry, and he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And what he's saying is there is sameness here. There is oneness here. There is unity. And this marriage then between the two becomes a symbol of, of where all things are headed. All things in creation are headed. That's what Ephesians 1 is about, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. This is the story of God's good intent for His creation. He is bringing all things together under Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile in the church, bride and lamb, heaven and earth, God and humans, God is bringing the two together into one, but let's be clear, okay? The oneness will never remove the two-ness. It will never remove our distinctions. Creation will always be creation. God will always be God. Men will always be men. Women will always be women. The thing is that we will be even more what we are. God will be even more God, more clearly God, and human beings will be even more human. We will be filled with the glory of Jesus Christ. Always keep in mind God's creation or His good intent in His creation. A couple things yet. 
The third way in which Jesus reframes this discussion is by bringing up the matter of the heart. All right? He brings up the matter of the heart. Again, the Pharisees come to him asking him about divorce, and notice what his answer is. He doesn't say, you know, the problem with your marriages is that your shirts are always coming out of the laundry yellow and that your wife doesn't make your favorite cookies. He doesn't say the problem is something outside of you. He says the problem is the hardness of your hearts. That's where divorce comes from. The hardness of your hearts. And friends, this changes the whole discussion. Here's the heart of the gender issue. Okay, excuse the pun. If someone experiences incongruence between their biological sex and their internal sense of self, what gets to determine who they are and why? What wins out? Internal self, external biology. The transgender movement says that above all else, my sense of self determines who I am. I do. Nothing else determines that. And Jesus says this. He says, no. He says, remember your hearts. Your hearts are hard. Jesus, friends, is always going back to the heart. Remember Matthew chapter 15, the disciples come to Jesus because the Pharisees have just come to them and and berated them for the fact that they weren't washing before they were eating and there were all these purity laws. Why weren't they keeping them? And what does Jesus say? He says, in short, look, it's not about what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's about what comes out of your mouth. Because what comes out of you comes from where? It comes from your heart. And your hearts are broken. And therefore, your hearts are deceptive. Friends, the idea that we should trust our inner voice over our bodily reality does not account for the fact that the most fallen thing about us is our hearts. It's a distorted voice. It's a distorted voice. And friends, I cannot tell you how often I've sat in my office and I've listened to people say things like, you know, I know that the Bible says it's wrong for me to cheat on my wife or my husband. I know that it's wrong, it's bad for my children, but it just feels right to do this. And I want to stand up and shout, no, don't listen to your heart. Because it lies. Jesus reframes this discussion by saying, remember your hearts. And finally, the fourth way he reframes the discussion is by bringing up the whole category of the eunuch. And I can't get into this all, friends, again, so suffice it to say, his first category for the eunuch is to say people are born this way. The second category is people do this to each other. What Jesus is saying here is there's a category we need to be all familiar with, and that is the creation has been impacted by sin. The creation itself is disordered, and that disorder has crept its way into our beings, into our hearts, in such a way that our bodies themselves are disordered and broken, and in many cases are not working the way they're supposed to, but in all cases have been impacted by the fall. 
And Jesus says you have to consider that category. You have to understand the extent to which sin has impacted this world. And this is why Jesus Christ had to come into the world, had to take on our flesh, had to die, and then have God raise his body from the dead as the first fruits of the new creation. He is making all things new, and Jesus is the first fruits of that, and our bodies will be made new as well. And so when we look at our broken bodies, it should be a reminder that we ourselves have been impacted by sin, that we are broken. That doesn't mean we should try and get a new body. That doesn't mean we should try and exchange our body for something else or alter our body in some way. That means that we should look ahead to the redemption of our bodies. Jesus Christ has promised that our bodies will be made new, will be renovated. It's Romans 8, right? It's Romans 8, which I can't find right now. But what, what Paul says there is all of creation is waiting, right, on pins and needles for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And friends, people who suffer with dysphoria, they know that better than anyone. But even us as Christians, we all live in that dysphoria, don't we? We all know that we are already presently children of God, that we have been adopted by Him, sons and daughters, and yet we live with this brokenness about us. We know that it's not yet complete, that there is more yet to come. And Jesus has promised that, yes, it will come. And so the brokenness of our bodies needs to remind us that Jesus Christ is working out our redemption in every way. And friends, we see this happening already. We see it happening already to believers. As our hearts become more like Jesus under the influence of the Holy Spirit, our bodies already now begin to glow with the glory of Christ. Let me just give you one example and then we're done, okay? I had an uncle, I'm going to call him Ted, that's not his real name, but I want to call him Ted, and uh, this was a man who was not a great-looking man, okay? Let me just say that. He would not have made the cover of any fashion magazine today. His primary issue was his nose, okay? It seemed to take up too much of his face. Many people today with his nose would go and talk to a plastic surgeon and see if they could tone it down just a bit. Uncle Ted took a different approach. He let the Spirit go to work on his heart. And he, became, or he began to manifest more and more the traits of Jesus. Now, when I knew Uncle Ted... <clears throat> Um, he, was, he was a pretty elderly man, and I was pretty young. And so when I saw him, the first thing that jumped out at me was that nose. But that nose, in its distinctness, it always, it always gave me a good feeling. Like, here comes joy. And here comes peace. And, and he put me at peace, and he made me feel safe and he made me feel welcome, and he made me feel valued in such a way that, 
that nose was the best thing that I could find. Because that nose grew to shine with the glory of God. That face of his, it wasn't all about self. It had come to reflect Jesus. Now, if that can happen today, and if just a nose can begin to shine with that kind of glory, imagine how we will shine one day when our hearts are made absolutely new. When we are fully redeemed. And friends, we see, we see those bits of glory in each other's bodies in people who reflect Jesus Christ and let him change and alter their hearts, it begins to glow. And it gives us hope that this is real. That one day Jesus is going to make us entirely new. I mean, what does that mean, do you think, for Uncle Ted? Will his nose one day be smaller? Will his nose become an average nose? I kind of doubt it. I think of it the other way, that the rest of his body is going to begin to shine with the same glory as that nose. The rest of his body is going to catch up one day. And every part of his body is going to shine with love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness self-control. He's going to be like Jesus, and yet he's going to be a hundred percent Uncle Ted. Uncle Ted's DNA. The glory of Christ. That's where we're headed. Don't forget it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for redeeming us. Lord, we all need it. There's not a person here. There's not a person here who doesn't need your redeeming. As we are about to come to your table and share in your flesh and blood, Remember your death and your resurrection. Remember what you have done for us in your own body. Lord, remind us that you are also giving us grace to help us grow in our faith, become more like Christ himself, and to shine with his glory in our own bodies. Lord, you are doing this. This is your work. Help us submit more and more to your spirit. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.